Hello and welcome to the Old Man Selling Podcast. I'm John Passmore and we've got some real characters for you today and also we've got something quite extraordinary. I just discovered it uh, and it's never seen the light of day before. Uh, so let's get started. I'm recording this in Island Harbour Marina in the Isle of Wight, right up towards Newport, past the Folly Inn. I'm actually out of the water. And the reason is because I'm supposed to be here to have a water maker fitted. I ordered it and paid for it in May. My plan was that I was going to come here and get it fitted along with a new water tank in June. But then... Uh, Island Harbour said, oh, um, sorry, Richardson's, uh, the boatyard here, said, uh, no, no, we're going to be terribly busy in June. Can you come in July? So about a week before I was due to come in July, I just checked in with them, checked that everything was all right. And they said, well, uh, where's the water tank? And I said, well, you're supposed to have it. Well, it turned out that they'd been sent an invoice for it. They hadn't seen the invoice, they hadn't paid it, so the tank hadn't been made. So... July became August and uh, I turned up in August and they said fine fine we've got the tank where's the water maker and I said well you've got it it was supposed to be sent directly to you it turns out that Sailfish Marine who sold me the water taker had been sitting on it for so long that they sold it to somebody else now I'd already paid for it they shouldn't be selling it to somebody else all right I said well can you get me another one yeah well how long is that going to take well, apparently they're made in Italy. He said, well, we haven't got it at the moment. We'll be getting some... Oh, for heaven's sake. So now I've got to go off for another month. And hopefully when I come back in September, they'll have got it. Because if I don't get it in September, then I'm setting off for the sunshine in October. It's a nightmare, isn't it? Anyway, enough of that. Enough of complaining. Um, here's something that I recorded on September the 30th, 2018. All about anchors. This has never happened to me before, and come to that, I've never heard of it happening to anybody else. But it is alarming, to say the least. This evening, I went to drop the anchor. I know from experience to lay out a good bit of chain on the foredeck, the last thing you want is to be drifting around all over the anchorage while you stand there yanking at the chain, trying to dislodge the knot it's got itself into in the chain locker. And that's what I did today, except the tangle wouldn't give. In the end, I had to empty all the sails out of the forecastle and dive headfirst into the forepeak to excavate it manually, which still took two attempts and a good ten minutes. I know what you're thinking. Of course, the windlass deposited the chain in a nice tall pyramid, which upended itself at the first sign of motion. Next, and this is where the trouble starts, when the boat jumped off a wave in a good blow, the bottom of the pyramid, which being broader at the base and therefore more stable, now took flight and landed on the top half. Now, I know that we're talking about 45-year-old chain here, galvanised but a bit rusty in places and 10 millimetre just to make it more difficult to shift. However, in all my years, and I'm now an old man, remember, 
I have never been unable to free it by yanking and jiggling from the deck, which is why you need a hole rather than one of those silly swan neck horse pipe arrangements. Of course, owners of modern boats who just pull up a hatch on the foredeck and it's all there and accessible are probably wondering what all the fuss is about. But don't forget, I've got the weight lower down where it belongs. So, I've been wondering what I can do to ensure this never happens again, particularly not when I'm running into a tiny, overcrowded anchorage with a gale behind me. First, I should say that the sides of the chain locker are already smooth with pieces of plywood bonded in to stop the chain sitting on the stringers. Secondly, I know that stainless steel chain slithers very nicely over itself and probably wouldn't do this. But isn't stainless ground tackle the preserve of the gin palace brethren? Any advice would be welcome. Of course, I could comfort myself that this sort of thing happens once in a lifetime, and now that it has, and no harm has done, I can relax. But that's the sort of argument that leaves a niggling thought at the back of the mind, what if it does happen again? What if it happens now, just when I can't afford any foul-ups? Gale Warning Mother had a rule. If there was a gale warning on the shipping forecast, we didn't go out. Actually, we didn't go out in 4-7 either, in case the shipping forecast had got it wrong. And just in case father started getting ideas, 4-6 was categorised as a yachtsman's gale. It wasn't until I was 18 and we were ambushed by a completely unforecast hurricane off the Ile de Bats and spent the night in survival mode that I discovered what all the fuss was about. I suppose it was inevitable that over the years the idea of Force 8 should lose its terror. All the same, when it came up on the shipping forecast in the middle of a passage from Poole to the east coast, there was something instinctive about hunting through the almanac for a bolt hole. Since the route had taken us round the back of the Isle of Wight, this didn't leave a lot of options. The only safe haven with any water in it, and enough water over the entrance when I needed it, was going to be Portsmouth. It was only about 15 miles away and I could pick up a mooring. Getting gale-bound in a marina can be ruinously expensive. In fact, I had spent an hour backtracking before I started thinking of this logically. Already I knew I was in for a hatful of wind. The picture on Wind Guru was distinctly red. But on the other hand, there was no sign of purple, which is what they use for gales. Moreover, the nastiness seemed to be concentrated in mid-channel. If I stuck to the coast, it looked as though I would find nothing worse than 20 knots, which is, what, about force 5. Besides, an offshore gale is a lot less menacing. Years ago, I took three teenagers off for a week. I had never met them before, and knew only that they could sail dinghies. They had been volunteered on me by my old school sailing club and their Get Them Into Bigger Boats program. The week coincided with a week of gales, but I could hardly send them home. Their parents had probably nipped off for a mini-break. 
Nor did a weak gale bound seem attractive, cooped up with three bored teenagers. So we tied down two reefs and went out every day to thrash around the Solent. Largo, being a rival 32, thrived in a blow. One way and another, it was a fantastic week. We visited five different harbours, dried out each evening over my pasta tins repertoire, and got to know each other very well indeed. Boring it was not. Well, now I have another rival 32, and Samsara's sail plan is even more suited to a blow than Largo's, with a too big furling jenny. But I dismissed Portsmouth, turned round and resumed the course, and guess what? The next forecast talked only of possibly gale eight, and that was for the whole sea area all the way to the French coast. And what did we get? Nothing more than twenty-two knots apparent. What the forecasters might have called occasionally six. In fact, the wind fell lighter and lighter until we ended up becalmed and going backwards off Dover, right in the middle of the heaviest concentration of shipping in the world. That was when Dover Port Control told me they had some work going on and the anchorage was closed. But you could go in the marina. I thanked them kindly and politely avoided any comments about ruinously expensive and went and anchored on a sandbank in the middle of nowhere. It's an old East Coast trick. Nobody's going to run you down anchored on a sandbank. It was oddly peaceful. Stop press. The following morning the Dover lifeboat turned up to check that I was all right. Apparently they don't get many people anchoring for the night on the Goodwin Sands. Someone had seen me from the shore and reported that I was not making way. The life men were terribly polite. I told them that I'd once been advised by an old fisherman that if ever I wanted to anchor without the risk of anyone disturbing me, or worse, running into me, I could do a lot worse than a sandbank. Lost Hat It is with the greatest regret that I have to report that my favourite hat, indeed the one I wear in my profile picture, has been lost over the side. It's not my fault. I had twenty knots of wind across the deck. It had already blown off once and landed on the cockpit floor. As if to demonstrate that I would get one chance. But then... If I had heeded every warning I had ever been given, life would have turned out very differently. Sure enough, just as I was getting the mainsail down at the same time as negotiating the famously narrow and winding approaches to Walton backwaters, Arthur Ransom fans will know all about this, the wind gave an extra puff and whipped it over the side. Of course, I went back for it, but with the sail halfway down, by the time I was able to turn the boat around, the hat had disappeared. I am very sad. However, I knew this day would come. Indeed, I have been consoling myself by reading The Lore of Lost Hats, which featured in my dog-watch column in Yachting World in the 1990s, 
and the 99 collection published by Adlard Coles and the much more recent book The Good Stuff. This is it. To the Fellows of the Royal Society. Dear Sirs, I am sure you will be delighted to hear that the borders of scientific knowledge have today taken a giant leap backwards with the completion of the next stage of my work on the subject of lost hats. You will recall my earlier work, which resulted in the publication of Passmore's first law of lost hats. In this we examined the complexities of cause and effect which come into play whenever the wind pipes up and someone on a boat puts on a hat. The breakthrough, which received considerable publicity at the time, came halfway through the first leg of the 1987 Azores and back race when the freebie sun visor donated by the race's sponsor ended up in the water some 300 miles west of Vigo, necessitating the vessel being turned around to retrieve it, uh, three attempts, and providing a rather good excuse for coming last. My own misfortune notwithstanding, that day will long be remembered in scientific circles for proving that in accordance with the laws of perplexity, the velocity with which I reached for the hat was matched instantly by an equal and greater increase in the wind speed, the ratio, of course, being dependent upon the square of the surface area of the visor's peak. Had the weather been less clement, and had I been wearing a bobble hat, we now know that the increase in the wind strength could have been calculated just as exactly from the circumference of the pom-pom. Other formulae relating to a range of headwear from the Chandler's Nylon Breton variety to the heavy-duty woollen affair with ear flaps and storm gussets, as knitted by the more traditional lifeboat coxswain's mother, are covered in Appendix 18. But the statistical analysis shows that in over 99.8743% of cases, every type of hat is eventually lost over the side. Further work, I happen to know, is underway to discover whether the new fleecy-type hats also comply with Passmore's first law. However, I consider that such work beneath me, since it is obvious that hats in shocking pink or luminous green fall outside the laws of good taste and therefore need not concern us. Uh, this brings me to the establishment of Passmore's second law of lost hats. Uh, this work deals with the relationship between the hat and the main or genoa sheet. It is, of necessity, a wider-ranging study by virtue of the fact that in aft cockpit yachts it is the main sheet which flips the hat over the rail, while in centre cockpit designs the genoa sheet emerges at the top of the table of probability. Uh, Appendix 17, Sheets, Guys, Halyards and Washing Lines. 
I was prompted to this avenue of inquiry after acquiring a centre cockpit vessel after many years with the other type. In the past, it had seemed that only spectacles exhibited any form of magnetism for the main sheet, but, as will be appreciated from an understanding of the principles of exasperation, only expensive prescription spectacles vanish in this way. Cheap plastic sunglasses, particularly the type bought in seaside postcard shops after leaving the Ray-Bans on board, go on forever. Hats, however, are another matter. And the study shows that every type exhibits an equal propensity for being caught between tacks and catapulted some considerable distance into the water. Indeed, my very first outing in my present yacht resulted in the loss of a much-treasured Lacoste woolly hat, which, I had to think, made me look like the most fashionable kind of New York mugger. And it disappeared in Chichester Harbour during the first experiments with my new endless-line Hedsel reefing gear. Indeed, it is this endless line, being as short as only an endless line can be, which was the cause of much of the trouble. Uh, I, I mean the research. The theory of vexation tells us that circumstances such as a rising wind, when the wearer has to lean out of the cockpit to haul on the furling line, put the hat directly into the path of the threshing Genoa sheet. Classifying such instances over the past year put paid to one Marks and Spencer's linen peaked cap, two Millet's woolly hats, three of Mr. Musto's rather grand double-thickness thermal affairs, and an indeterminate number of ridiculous sun hats which were asking for it anyway. It is interesting to note that replacing the endless line with a longer endless line, which is, of course, an impossibility of terms, did not alter the findings. Indeed, it is now possible to stand in the exact centre of Lottie Warren's cockpit, hauling on the line, and watch the Genoa sheet make a determined lunge inboard to snatch one's hat into the water. I have attached some preliminary work on this phenomenon, Genoa Sheets, Alien Intelligence or Inanimate Abuse. I await the comments of fellow fellows with interest. Here's a bit of fun for you. Go onto YouTube and search for Iron Filings in Breakfast Cereals. This will show you why you don't get very much goodness from a lot of your food. If you do want to live to a hundred, have a look at the blog oldmansailing.com and click on the Good Health page. Meanwhile, all that time dodging gales in pool had led to all sorts of things growing on the bottom, which in turn introduced me to all sorts of characters. Here's what I wrote in October of that year, 2018. They weren't there when I went over the side on the way back from the Azores. The bottom was as clean as a whistle. After a lot of Facebook discussion, Pool Harbour gets the blame. Apparently, we've had so many really wet summers, until this year, that is, that the nitrate fertilizers had been washed straight off the farmland into the rivers and estuaries, dramatically altering the ecosystem.
and of course pool doesn't get flushed out as thoroughly as an estuary. It seems they're goose barnacles. I'll have to find a better place to scrape them off though. I was in mud, it was up to my knees against the quay at Walton at the time. I went to Felixstowe Ferry, dried out against the scrubbing posts, and the harbour master wandered over, took a look, pursed his lip and said, A rival is she. I had just scraped off the last of the goose barnacles and was going round the top sides with a rag and a bottle of hull cleaner, so I was feeling a certain pride of ownership. But there's nothing like a compliment from a harbour master to put things in perspective. Harbour masters have seen it all, and you could tell that this one had seen it and shaken his head over most of it. I had waved to him on the river as he chugged past in his ancient workboat with harbour master flying from the ensign staff. This was the vessel I learned later from the sign in his ancient office that was available for sightseeing trips and ash-scattering by arrangement. Good boats, rivals, he continued. Nice wide decks for getting around. And look at that keel. Good skeg, too. Strong. Then he added, as my old dad used to say, they go a long way and they take a long time to get there. Well, yes, I suppose so. Nobody has ever claimed that a rival is a fast boat. It may be a product of my return to the design in retirement, but I don't mind that anymore. Thirty years ago, when I took Largo across the Atlantic in the O-Star, I had ironic T-shirts printed with the legend Largo, broad and slow. I looked up the musician's term in a dictionary. Now I realise that if you have a fast boat, all you want is a faster boat. You're constantly upgrading the gear, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because the man on the stand at the boat show says it'll give you an extra half a knot. So I have been able to forget the harbour master's father's views and concentrate on Samsara's other virtues, of which we agreed there are many. Not forgetting the extra half a knot, that comes from not towing a bottom full of barnacles. I'm not alone after all. Anchoring last night in Kirby Creek in the Walton backwaters, the only other vessel was a tiny fishing boat on a mooring, unoccupied, and still I left 300 yards between us. Then today, an old man another one, rode across in an ancient weed-covered dinghy to say hello. He'd been taking his dog ashore, a liver-and-white Springer Spaniel, and I've got one of those at home, so we had something to talk about. After a couple of minutes on the subject of where he could land around here without sinking thigh-deep into mud, and how he'd left his friend Paul on the boat wrestling with the wiring, a small voice in the back of my head suggested it would be neighbourly to invite him aboard for a cup of tea. Immediately, of course, another voice burst in, protesting at the invasion of my solitude, and adding the age-old warning that inviting single-handers for tea, you can never get rid of them, but I know that if I keep spurning all human contact, 
I shall end up even more reclusive and socially awkward than I am already. So, yes, he replied, he would be delighted to come aboard for a cup of tea. Getting him onto Sansara was a challenge that neither of us had considered, because David Haig Thomas is 78, and you only have to look at his oil-stained sweater and his prehistoric corduroys with their missing buttons to know that he is the, not the sort of man to balk at climbing aboard without benefit of a ladder. Actually, next time I shall get the ladder out. I'm still trying to remove my heart from my mouth at the memory of him swaying between dinghy and deck, his entire weight on the wobbling guardrail like a clown on a tightrope. But in the end, we sat in the cabin over our tea, and he told me more tall tales in the space of half an hour than I think I have ever heard before. The dog that stole the Sunday joint from a different neighbour every week, his naked swim round the backwaters interrupted by the picnicking family from Clacton, his father getting an island named after him. Actually, maybe they weren't such tall tales. I just looked up the Arctic explorer David Haig Thomas, Sr., and yes, and yes, Haig Thomas Island is one of the Sverdrup Islands in the Kviktavluk region of Nunuvut, Canada's northernmost province. During the war, he volunteered for the commandos and died in the D-Day landings when young David was four. After our tea, my guest swayed mightily once more and eventually settled with Susie the Springer in the ancient dinghy and set off again, whereupon Susie promptly jumped over the side and started swimming. Neither of us were sure about this, given the distance she would have to cover, even with the tide. In the end, David headed for a pebble beach which looked marginally less muddy than the rest of the foreshore. As dusk fell, I could hear an engine running and could see a blaze of fluorescent light from the little fishing boat's wheelhouse. The wiring seems to be connected again. Just as well. We're going herring fishing tomorrow. The voyage began in Tobermory, that picturesque fishing harbour in the Hebrides, after I got falling down drunk, and actually fell down. Falling down is something old people do. Younger people rush to their age, shouting, He's had a fall! He's had a fall! Somebody calls an ambulance, and while waiting for it to arrive, talk over the old person as if they weren't there, and discuss the chances of recovering from a broken leg next to zero. Having a fall was something my father-in-law did every so often, and always at the most inconvenient time. Every time it happened, somebody had to put down their knife and fork, or throw a coat over their pyjamas, and go round and set him on his feet again like a toy soldier. He was ninety-four. So, I wanted to make sure that my own predicament in the woods above the restaurant was fully understood. I was drunk. Teenagers get drunk as an experiment. Twenty-something office workers get drunk on a Friday night and go home with somebody whose name they can't remember on Saturday morning. 
Football fans, racegoers, wedding guests, everybody gets drunk sometimes, and it's usually with impunity. That is why I am belabouring the inebriation. I don't want people to think of me as an old man. Admittedly, this is something of a tall order, given the fact that for most of the time I do tend to harp on about being over 70. For heaven's sake, the blog is called oldmansailing.com, and you can't have much more of a giveaway than that. So, here's how it happened. I first called at Tobermory in the autumn of 2020, the year of Covid, well, the first year. I had missed the first lockdown. Actually, I had sidled away from it by going sailing out into the Atlantic and arriving back some 3,600 miles and 42 days later to find myself celebrated on the Brian Vine Radio 2 show as some sort of embodiment of the nation's lockdown dream. Uh, by the end of the summer, I still hadn't managed to see my family, so it seemed sensible to go up the Irish Sea into Liverpool, where my son Theo was back studying medicine. And that meant the easiest way to get to Leeds for Lottie, liberal arts, was to go down the east coast, which meant, of course, going over the top of Scotland. I shouldn't need an excuse to go over the top of Scotland any more than I should have needed one to put it to Dombermory for an assignation with the seafood platter at the Café Fish. This stands on the quay at the end of the row of brightly painted buildings which make the little town so recognisable. It is on to the quay, right opposite the café's front door, that the café's fishing boat lands its catch at four o'clock every afternoon. Two hours later, the lobster is on your plate. That's if the café isn't closed because the front door is the only door and without a separate entrance and exit, they can't comply with the social distancing regulations. I promised I would return, and did in the second year of Covid, to find they had progressed only as far as takeaway fish and chips. Second best, if you're stuck like this in Tobermory, is the Mishnish restaurant. To make up for the disappointment, I added half a lobster to the crayfish, oysters, mussels, crabs and whatnot. It was three and a half hours later that I rose from the table and the bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, two helpings of ice cream, extra coffee and, oh hell, why not, Drambuie. Up until that point, I had been amazingly sensible. The thing you have to remember about Tobermory Harbour is that it is incredibly deep. There is still 15 metres of water under your keel when the boat is within spitting distance of the rocks, so anchoring is a bind. They do have a marina and mooring boys, and those cost money which could be better spent on lobster, so I had excavated the cockpit locker to find enough line to shackle onto the anchor chain to anchor in 28 metres, a rather startling 84 metres in case you were wondering. The other reason people don't like to anchor is because it adds a half-mile dinghy ride. That didn't trouble me. I like dinghy rides now. I have an electric outboard and glide about in perfect silence, sidling up to half-submerged gannets and seals looking the other way. But the longer you spend in a dinghy immediately after a seafood platter, a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, two helpings of ice cream and, of course, the Drambuie, then probably, probably, the more likely it is that your epitaph will be 
a headline from the local paper, Drowned OAP Sailor Was Pissed. So, on leaving the restaurant, as they started getting the place ready for dinner, I sat for a time on the bench outside, and then, when it appeared I might fall asleep and be mistaken for a street drunk, I set off to the woods to walk it off, or possibly find a more secluded bench. It was in the woods that it seemed a good idea to pay a visit behind a tree, and these were rather formal woods with railings alongside the path. So it was with some difficulty that I managed to climb over the railing and find a convenient tree. It was on the way back that I tripped in a tangle of ivy and put out a hand to catch the railings. A word of warning. Don't do this. Well, possibly don't do any of it, but certainly don't put out a hand to catch a railing in front of you. Given the momentum of a falling body full of lobster, crab, crayfish and so on, not to mention two helpings of ice cream, the leverage exerted on an outstretched arm is going to be massive. Also, it is worth noting that if you raise your arm above your head, you cannot move it backwards over your shoulder. It just won't go, at least not unless the ball and socket joint dislocates. I really wish I had thought of this before. Instead, I yelped with pain as for the very first time I felt that weird sensation of my shoulder joint coming apart. I say that I yelped. In fact, I don't think I have felt pain like it, except perhaps a few moments later lying on the ground when I tried to move the arm and the joint snapped back together with an audible click. Sitting on the ground feeling giddy and sick, I wondered whether the dinghy option hadn't been the better choice after all. I sat there in the woods on the wrong side of the railings with my eyes shut and my teeth gritted. After what seemed like a long time, the pain gave way to the potential embarrassment of being found by a well-meaning passer-by. Well-meaning passers-by like nothing more than to find an old person who has had a fall. Before you know where you are, they called an ambulance. With some difficulty, I managed to get myself up, which at least averted the ambulance scenario, and tested the arm. It felt useless. I couldn't raise it at all. Swinging it gently from my side was possible, but still painful. What a bloody fool. I couldn't sail like this. Moreover, I was due at home in Suffolk in three weeks. Tamsin's father had died at the height of the pandemic, and this was our first chance to have a leaving party for him. And here was I, geometrically at the other end of the country, and more to the point, on an island. I'd been planning to leave the next morning. The forecast promised three days of northerly winds down the Irish Sea, and how often do you get that? The Irish Sea is usually full of southerly fresh to strong, and anyone who has travelled on the ferry from Fishguard to Stranra will know what that does to the sea state. Instead, I would have to stay where I was. Dustin Reynolds, the famous one-armed and also one-legged single-handed sailor, literally, may have been able to lift 84 metres of combined chain and anchor warp, but he'd had time to learn how to do all sorts of things. 
If I'd tried it, I knew where that would end. There was nothing for it but to convalesce and stop worrying. As it happens, I was in just the right frame of mind for accepting the inevitable. As it says on the cover, this is Old Man Sailing Book 2. Book 1 was the account of sidling away from lockdown by going sailing out into the Atlantic, returning 42 days and 3,629 miles later, with tattered sails short of water, and to find myself celebrated, etc., etc., etc. Even more surprising was how well it sold, and still continues to sell. Six months after publication, it remained stubbornly in the top five of Amazon's sailing books and was certainly the most popular account of a personal voyage. It might have done even better if it was available in Audible as well. Audiobooks are a big thing and sell for two or three times the price of the paperback or e-book. Moreover, if the author narrates it, he keeps all the royalties. Once I went back to the boat after Christmas, I plugged in my phone headset and started recording. It wasn't as easy as I imagined. Actors, and presumably professional narrators, are trained to read without stumbling over their words, getting a pause in the wrong place, or, in my case, being interrupted by a couple of hundred geese all starting to honk at once because it's time for take-off practice, ready for the big migration in the spring. Nevertheless, I managed to record all 13 chapters. Then I set about finding out how to get it uploaded to Audible. Turns out that this part isn't as easy as I had imagined. You have to do it through a portal called ACX, which tests it for quality. I bought a proper microphone and stand and started again. It was time-consuming. It was tiresome. By the time I'd gone back and re-recorded my slip-ups, each 40-minute chapter was taking two hours. Also, I was coming to go through and edit out the knock of a wave slapping the hull or a halyard tapping against the mast, what they called post-production. Although I doubt many narrators had to do as much editing as I did. And would you believe it failed the quality test again? By this time I was in Lossiemouth on the east coast of Scotland, getting the anchor and chain regalvanized, an operation that took ten working days. I spent all my days shut in the cabin, penned in by the microphone and computer wires, trying to follow all the advice I was getting from the ACET narrator's Facebook group. As with all Facebook advice, it was as extensive as it was conflicting. In the end, I homed in on a man in Nebraska who offered to talk me through my audio settings. By this time, I was spending as much time in the steamboat inn, which was the only place to get an internet connection. Of course, I had to order a beer to justify taking up one of their tables. In the end, the barmaid started pouring a pint of tenants as soon as I walked through the door. In the end, the received wisdom was that my little 4 gigabyte laptop just wasn't up to the job. That was probably where all the electronic clicks were coming from. You could only just run Windows updates on 4 gigabytes. Decent audio software was going to take 16 at least. By the time I had ordered a new laptop, 
I was in Lochinver on the west coast. The clicks were less frequent, but what was all this reverb my friends were hearing? Didn't I know there would be a second level of checks to establish my floor level? I bought an audio repair program and then upgraded it. No, no, that was okay for fixing the occasional isolated problem. I couldn't run the whole recording through it. That would just add new layers of imperfection. What I needed to create was a sound booth in my cabin. That would probably deal with the clicks too. They were back and probably not electronic at all, but ambient sound. I started looking up collapsible sound booths. I could get one delivered to Falmouth. After three days, my right arm had gone from being unable to lift the kettle to almost the equal of the left. Certainly I could get the anchor up. The trouble was that in those three days of recuperation, the northerly winds in the Irish Sea disappeared to be replaced on the windy app by a mess of blue with tiny arrows meandering in no particular direction. Blue means light winds. Orange is strong, red is gales. Green is what you want. Green is moderate winds. You don't want to know about yellow, or for heaven's help us, white. I would probably end up getting as far as Conway and taking a train from there. Conway was where I bought Samsara, so I'd done it before. Interminable journey with changes at Chester and Peterborough. It was a shame I wasn't heading out into the Atlantic again. There would be plenty of green wind in the Atlantic. From the north, too. I let the app play forwards, the patterns changing with the days. Yes, there was a lot of fair wind west of Ireland. In fact, if I stayed a hundred miles offshore, I could carry it all the way into the Celtic Sea, where I might even pick up a northeasterly to carry me to the Lizard. It would be a greater distance, 700 miles, compared to 500 by the Irish Sea. But think how much more pleasant, gliding along under spinnaker, sunbathing in the cockpit. Also, I wouldn't be plagued with shipping and fishing boats and other yachts. A hundred miles west of Ireland wasn't on the way to anywhere. Maybe it was the process of planning a proper voyage or just the reminder of what I was supposed to be doing now I was retired onto my boat. But I started looking at the downside of this book narration business. Until now, I'd only looked at the kudos of read by the author. And, of course, the little matter of getting paid twice. But, for instance, I started totting up what I had been spending, because there was a lot more than all those pints of tenants in the steamboat. Anyway, I looked at it. I must have spent a thousand pounds with so far nothing to show for it, and now I was thinking of buying a collapsible sound booth, without giving a thought to where I might stow it, even when it was collapsed. The obsession had outgrown the reality. Besides, I wasn't planning a new career as a narrator. This was just for my own stuff. And did I really want to spend my days with my face in a collapsible sound booth? Without noticing it, I had gone back to work. I wasn't supposed to be working. I was supposed to be living the dream. I snapped down the lid of the fancy new 16 gigabyte computer, 
shutting off the nine chapters I had already recorded for the third time, I had better things to do. I was going out into the Atlantic again, and for three days I carried the spinnaker down the west coast of Ireland. I couldn't see it, of course. The green hills were well below the horizon. My friend the Galway harbour master a world away with his four pints of Guinness. In fact, I didn't see another ship until I turned the corner off the southwest. Spotify played all day. I have now added The Clash and The Jam and The Andrews Sisters. I read Robin Knox Johnson's A World of My Own about his 1968 solo circumnavigation, The World's First. I'd read it before, of course, at least a couple of times, but not for 40 years. I suggest that solo sailors should read it once every 10 years, just to remind themselves how easy they have it these days, and just how much adversity can be overcome with ingenuity, determination, and, let's face it, no alternative. What I hadn't realised until now was how long he slept, when he had the chance, that is. Six hours was not uncommon. On one occasion he slept through for 18 hours, only worrying that it might have been 36 and he had missed Christmas Day. I never sleep for more than 90 minutes at a time, and now I began to consider it. For one thing, although my shoulder appeared to be healing nicely, getting stronger every day and so much less painful that I didn't notice it for most of the time, as soon as I tried to go to sleep, it ached horribly. I suppose it must have been something to do with no longer moving it all the time. But I would set my alarm for half an hour, and twenty-five minutes later I would be still awake. If this went on, I would never get any sleep. Then I asked myself why I was setting an alarm for half an hour. There was clearly no shipping about. I was too far off the coast to run into any Irish fishing boats with their AIS beacons turned off. If the wind did change, I would know about it soon enough. I had the spinnaker up, and that meant the electronic autopilot steered its compass course. I set the alarm for three hours. And slept for three hours. And there you go. A bit of a mammoth session. Don't forget that if you'd like to buy me a beer, you can do that on the blog at oldmansailing.com. And, of course, everything else is there, too. See you next time.